0: When people are confident in their own skill development, they can they can then take that and learn on their own. They become self-sustained learners moving forward. And in, in this day and age, that's what we need to equip people to be.
1: Welcome to a bonus episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota, And today we're back with another in our series of bonus episodes with North Carolina Broadband Matters, talking about how to make sure we get high quality internet access out to everyone. Uh, We're very excited for this uh, continuing partnership to focus on North Carolina. And this is something that we're going to set the stage today with national context around digital inclusion, building digital skills and what's going on. And then we're going to zoom into what North Carolina is doing about it in the next show. So today we have two people who have been on before, people that uh, many listeners are undoubtedly familiar with. Uh, We have Amy Huffman, who is a policy director at the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, which is uh, NDIA. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me, Chris. It's great to be here.
1: Absolutely. And we also have Krista Vinson, who is a program officer at the Rural Program in the Local Initiative Support Corporation, which most people know in the nonprofit world as LISC, which is like super popular and has a great reputation. So welcome back to the show, Krista.
2: Thank you, Chris. Glad to be here.
1: So I want to start with you, Krista, and I'll just ask you briefly. I think it's maybe been a year, maybe nine months. I don't know since we talked about digital navigators and how you were working together with uh, with NDIA and Paulo, uh, I believe at the time to uh, to flesh that out. Uh, how how's it going?
2: Well, it's really exciting to see how much this community of practice has grown, and I think many of us who are involved in this space are starting to think of digital navigator as a role in a community, capital D, capital N, uh, a set of skills that an individual can uh, cross-train to support their community with or or even be, you know, assume the role of, of digital navigator in a community. And that's really exciting progress because digital inclusion and digital equity are increasingly recognized as part of the equation. The third leg of the stool, along with uh, broadband access and affordability, would be those would be those skills uh, that a digital navigator can support. In the nine months uh, since we last spoke, the Local Initiative Support Corporation's rural program, Rural LISC's digital navigator strategy, has grown to include. 32 communities in 20 states where individuals have cross-trained as digital navigators to offer this digital inclusion support to community
1: members that is impressive thank you yeah is there any is there a story that pops into your head as to like how this has been valuable I'm curious
2: there are so many stories and unique to the place where digital navigators are, are offering uh, this solution and, and this access and this support in rural appalachia our cross trained digital navigators who were working with folks who were sidelined from work and uh, due to the pandemic and were trying to build those skills to get back into the labor force. A digital navigator was able to offer that individual access to a laptop, build skills to use a computer, to build a resume, to promote um, their job readiness while at the same time having that laptop available in that household for um, children who were trying to participate in a remote school and we heard uh, a wonderful story of you know this father who was able to help his children do their homework in a warm place instead of a parking lot while he pursued um, you know re-entry into the labor market and so the digital navigator was able to Um, sort of recognize that there were multiple tech access needs in that household and make a difference. So many exciting anecdotes of of folks um, for whom digital inclusion was ultimately really supportive. We have a program partner in, in the Appalachia region in Kentucky that was working with returning citizens and were defining digital inclusion to mean access to a cell phone so that they could stay uh, close to their network of support as they um, kind of re-emerged and, and uh, re-solidified relationships with family, uh, with the, you know, with the workforce, et cetera. I can go on. Seniors <laughs> who use tablets for telehealth. Um, just re- many important examples. Obviously, we all know the urgency of connectivity that was magnified by the pandemic and to hear from digital navigators when they're able to provide that uh, one-to-one support. Uh, and sort of recognize need and co- you know, connect uh, that need to opportunity uh, is one of the most remarkable things that we've seen in the past nine months, in the past year, as we emerge from the pandemic.
1: That is wonderful. Amy, I want to I wanna bring you in. You've been with uh, National Digital Inclusion Alliance for, so I'm approaching a year now. Is that right?
0: About six months.
1: Six months. Okay. So, so really, it's been three years then because these six months are not <laughs> normal months. <laughs> and you came from North Carolina. Uh, how much do you regret your decision at this point?
0: <laughs> oh, Chris, come on.
1: We've had many people on from National Digital Inclusion Alliance. Angela is one of my favorite people ever. So I feel like I can tease.
0: I do not regret it. Um, but you know, it's different. I I absolutely loved my job at the state. Um, I worked in the broadband infrastructure office as the and absolutely loved it, adored it, definitely miss it. Um, but the this being with the National Digital Inclusion Alliance is super exciting. Getting to do what I did, what we did at the state level on a national scale is so exciting. And while it, you're right, um not only does six months feel like three years in pandemic times, but it's also (laughs) in the midst of the biggest um, potential investment of broadband from the federal government in history and definitely my lifetime. Uh, Working on the Hill during that time has definitely been incredible and exciting and um, I'm really optimistic about the future of our country if Congress gets it right and passes the infrastructure bill.
1: Well, and that's one of the things I wanted to talk with both of you about is is exactly just that. It seems like we've... We've crossed into a time period when um, lo- not only local governments, state governments, and the federal government are now taking this seriously. Um, you know, we still have a hangover in which people think about broadband in terms of just whether or not infrastructure is available, but that's really changing, and we're actually seeing money set aside for digital skills building and affordability and things like that. So, Amy, if you just want to start, why don't you pick one of the signs of these changes, and then maybe we can go back and forth a little bit with other ones?
0: Yeah, actually, I'll start with something that I've been reading through today. Um, So one of the major funds that the federal government has made available, that's available now, um, was made available through the American Rescue Plan Act. And it's a $10 billion um, fund for capital, quote unquote, capital projects. We've been waiting for the guidance to come out on that for six, eight months now, something like that. The guidance just came out yesterday and as I've been sifting through it and reading through it, I'm seeing things I've never seen in federal policy before. I've never seen like on paper. So for instance, it's giving the eligible applicants will be states and territories and tribal governments. Um, It's giving those applicants the flexibility to figure out what unserved areas are like in their states, which is, nearly unheard of. Um, And it's also saying that those unserved areas are areas that are unserved by at least 100 down 20 up, which is also unheard of, right? Um, And then it's really just baking digital inclusion into the eligible funds. So in the deployment, like if you apply for funding for a deployment project, it's baking in um, that project needs to be the, the end service needs to be made eligible for the emergency broadband benefit or whatever that continued program is it needs to have a low cost offer for low-income consumers it they need to address affordability as they are building out this project and making sure that they work with the community to do that which i've never seen that type of language in, in in these types of bills before and that's just the broadband deployment section there's a whole section for potential digital inclusion projects, including equipment like computers and tablets and et cetera, and public Wi Fi, um, which could be used for things like gap networks in communities where access is available but not affordable. And so I think that's just like an emblem of the times and, and hope, and it makes me hopeful for our future. And, and where we're
1: going. Right. One of the things I would add to that is that um, what this means in practicality, and for instance, in North Carolina, is that we know that there are areas that undoubtedly uh, have no access, where maybe even satellite doesn't work in in parts of the the western part of the state, for instance. Um, We also know that parts of the eastern part of the state, in particular, entire towns have service, which looks like it's gigabit, but it doesn't work well. It's, it's unreliable. It'll break for days or weeks at a time. And uh, the price keeps going up. And so now both of those areas could be considered unserved, depending on the definitions. And uh, anything that's built has to be designed for the future. It has to have affordability. And then on top of it, you, just, you have other areas that, you know, you might be able to say that in, in Durham, there's neighborhoods maybe where just nobody can afford the access that's there. Even if it's reliable, if you have 70 or $80 a month, um, you can still say, well, this is not meeting the needs of, of this particular neighborhood. So, you know, I don't think you can build, um, you know, a, a wealthy suburb uh, with this money. And, um, and I don't know that, that we should be focused on that right now uh, with federal dollars. But, um, but this is quite flexible and exciting.
0: Yeah, I think that's what excites me about it because I mean we know that the digital divide it doesn't discriminate based on rural versus urban, but it does have um, there are specific solutions to be applied based on what the specific challenge is facing that that community, and this provides the flexibility for the state and or you know grantee to tailor those solutions so they fit the actual needs of the community. And so I think that's really exciting.
1: And Krista, what's a a different example of something that you're seeing that shows that this is being taken seriously now?
2: LISC and Rural LISC work with a network of community-based partners, including uh, oftentimes uh, organizations, community action agencies that support LISC's Financial Opportunity Center program. And to see language in the community service block grant program that would provide for digital navigator training, or to imagine the possibility that the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act reauthorization would include digital skilling as a workforce skill building opportunity or requirement, I think really demonstrates the progress and the recognition that technology access and confident use of technology underlies every industry sector in the economy and uh, we are particularly energized at LISC to think that a digital navigator program like the one that we support would have follow-on funding from some of these federal funding streams to continue to be able to provide this resource to the community and LISC has Cross-trained digital navigators at community action agencies, at multifamily affordable housing developments, um, health providers, financial opportunity centers, as I said, and other community-based organizations, and the and the thought that any deeply anchored community organization could be an ally in increasing productive digital participation from all and to see these various federal funding streams recognize the role of digital inclusion and then be able to resource that community-based organization and provisioning these services is a sea change uh, and something that, that I think we're all energized by and looking forward to carrying forward.
1: Uh, because I'm an amazing actor, you didn't see how surprised I was. Um, but I uh I had no idea. I mean so I mean Amy's talking about things I was aware of, where like bills about broadband are now talking about adoption and things like that. You're talking about things that have nothing to do, you know, on their surface with broadband, in which uh there's a recognition now that the workforce generally needs these kinds of skills. Exactly. That's it's wonderful. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, this is you know we talk about a 21st century economy and economic competitiveness coming from uh, you know a labor force with the, the requisite skills that are going to you know build this economy of the future. Undergirding all that is, is digital skills. So we have to ensure the access to technology, the confident use of, of of technology, in order for folks that you know are still of prime working age to participate in the labor market. Um, with the requisite skills. And so programs like the Community uh, Services Block Grant and WIOA uh, speak to that. But we're also seeing um, a remarkable growth in telehealth. And so you know, telehealth users are not necessarily uh, you know, in, the, in the labor force. We would be talking about a senior population and the importance of creating kind of that access to technology and that confidence use of technology in order to take up uh, uh, telehealth, you know, is, a, is an important evolution. I am not an expert in the health sector. To, so to be able to point to some examples of where funding is coming from, I may have to save for, for a later show. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're, we're really seeing every industry sort of recognize the, the, um, how embedded uh, technology access and technology skills are.
1: And there were some policy changes that enabled more telehealth. And I think a number of, of hospitals and people that follow this more closely than we do are very worried that those could be reversed. And we need to keep encouraging telehealth from what I've seen. But there's something you said several times now that I love, um, confident use of technology. Amy, have you heard that before? I, it was new to me as a phrasing.
0: Yeah, yeah, we've heard it Um I think that's exactly what we're looking for, right? We we're looking for to put people on a progressive pathway of skill development so that they become confident in their technology use because digital skills is something that we're always going to need to be learning. Like 5 years ago I didn't know how to use Zoom, right? And now I use it every day. And so so putting when people are confident in their own skill development, they can they can then take that and learn on their own. They become self-sustained learners moving forward and and in, in in this day and age, that's what we need to equip people to be.
1: I love that. Or,
2: or a favorite phrasing that I've heard is the idea of digital resiliency. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, that the skill isn't necessarily like technical knowledge. It's it's um, grit, you know, I like to that, sort yeah. of solve a problem.
1: Mm-hmm. And you know, I, w- I would just say something that um, we've been noodling over and I've talked with a few people about it and who have been doing some of this work is – when we're trying to develop people that are going to be working in policy, I'll often say we want a humble confidence um, because – part of the problem we face is frankly arrogant usually men who uh use their knowledge like a weapon and um and can scare people from getting into this and so like i always feel like i want people to feel confident that they know enough to participate in meetings and also to be humble because i don't know about y'all but like i'm approaching 15 years and i'm learning stuff every day like and there's there's stuff that like my my team asks me and i'm like i don't know how to answer that question like i don't i don't know <laughs> and and so there's like this humility that we all need in this space which is very complicated but but definitely knowable to figure out what you need and then working together to to fill in our knowledge gaps so um confidence is great and i think we just need to we need to keep focused on that one of the things we wanted to cover was um, whether, um, was what North Carolina has contributed to this. Uh, you know, we're going to come back and talk more about what North Carolina is doing uh, right now with some guests that are doing it in North Carolina. But, um, but what, what, has, um, what has North Carolina contributed to this national conversation to get us to this point?
0: So I'll start and I'm sure Krista can jump in. Um, and I should say I'm still based in North Carolina. So, um, yeah. you know, go Tar Heels.
1: North Carolina is wonderful. I mean, it's
0: it's got to be the most beautiful state.
1: <laughs> I complain about things like their, the state law against municipal broadband because it's such a great state otherwise, like and there, right. there's so many right. great parts of it. So, yeah, there's no, no argument there.
0: Yeah. Um, so I think North Carolina has set a lot of wonderful precedents for the country. Um, and as I was thinking through this, I think really it kind of goes back to that humble confidence, Chris. It's it's actually less of a tangible thing and more of a, a community. NDIA, we've started working on this term called, "there's really this ecosystem. So, so digital inclusion is more than just an individual over here and an individual over there working in their silos in the healthcare or education on specific, you know, getting computers to people or skills over here. But it's really um, the places where we see the most progress, um, where communities are really advancing in their skill development and, and adoption of broadband, are those where there's a strong digital inclusion ecosystem. In North Carolina, while there's you know arguments that can be made that maybe a state can't be a whole ecosystem, in North Carolina there really is a strong ecosystem of organizations that work collaboratively um, and in a like a, a way a very supportive way What I love about your humble confidence is when I was working for the state I felt that, very much that this, I will forever be learning in this field. And I think that's one of the reasons I love it so much. Um, but I could go to anyone in the community in Charlotte or Durham, or in rural Western North Carolina and ask questions and learn from them about what they're doing. And then, and then we could talk about, hey, that might work over here in, in Robinson County, right? So like, so how can we take what each other are doing and scale it? And so that was a lot of what has happened to date and historically in North Carolina. And I think that, other states and communities are catching on to that. And that's a beautiful thing to see. And I hope that continues. But if, if, if anything, I, my hope is that that is what becomes the model, that collaboration, that community, that sense of sharing, that sense of we're all in this together um, to, to create a digital equity ecosystem, a digital inclusion ecosystem. And we're really all in this together to, to advance the people within our specific communities.
1: Excellent.
2: Definitely share that Tar Heel pride. And we can go way back in North Carolina and discover early leadership, early national leadership on this topic of digital opportunity. You know, we now think of it as digital equity, that broadband access plus that those skills and and, uh, to to use the technology and, and to afford the technology. NC Broadband Matters counts among its leaders, Jane Smith Patterson. Uh, who helped define the idea of tech-led economic development and the role um, of public-private partner relationships in deploying broadband infrastructure uh, that continue to inspire states around the country. Amy worked for uh, the NC Broadband Infrastructure Office There are some states that are just now setting up broadband infrastructure offices. Just hearing from Ohio yesterday, their grant program is less than a year old, but North Carolina has a track record. Uh, and continues to build on that. And I absolutely agree with Amy's insight about how essential cross-collaboration and learning is, um, and certainly for digital inclusion, but uh, digital inclusion as economic and community development is something that I think North Carolina is well-practiced in. Programs like the Band NC uh, uh, digital inclusion grant program was the first of its kind in the nation and coming out of the Institute for Emerging Issues and the other collaborators, uh, the North Carolina Electric Membership Cooperatives, I believe were, were, an, were an early investor in the ideas there, um, comes from a history of cross-community collaboration. You know, um, it, The Institute for Emerging Issues was really formed um, to do that shared learning across the state. Um, so it's, I think it's a real point of Tar Heel pride uh, to, um, to, to collaborate. And as LISC and the NDIA build communities of practice nationally, I mean, what underlies that is that the idea of collaboration and we can learn from each other and we can extend one another's reach, get further faster.
1: Yeah, that's. I think that's really important. I can't stress enough how much collaboration has allowed us to succeed at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance on our team, you know, like just everything that we do has been learning with people who are willing to share information often going above and beyond. And, um, and I see that when I go to, I went to the, the Institute for emerging technology issue, um, the, the forum that they had um, at NC state where they're housed. Um, and people from all across the state were there, people from, you know, church groups, groups of faith, um, all kinds of, of different walks of life and they all were interested and it was a, it was a wonderful, um, event that they put together let me ask um, how um, this is changing gears a little bit and um, but like how when um, you're when we're doing this work out in the field that is now being taken seriously um, what are the, the modern methods of identifying who needs help and how to, to get it to them and in that sort of a thing I mean we're it seems like we're a long way from from what uh, e2d was doing uh, back you know like four or five years ago when they were like making sure that everyone had a, a, a device in the school and things like like that um so what's the modern approach
2: well if i can go first because i have to put in a little commercial for e2d i think they uh just brought in their largest inventory ever i think seven million dollars worth of equipment that they are going to turn around refurbish and and redistribute uh, into communities and uh another fantastic part about their model is it's a job training program you know so folks are uh, building skills um, uh, that they can use, uh, you know, in their future careers uh, by refurbishing, refurbishing those machines.
1: People should dig into the archives to, to learn about to hear the interview with one of the, the co-founders. But but Krista, what's the 32nd vi- ver- version of what they do?
2: Yes. Well, that so they they refurbish equipment. They um, in fact, one of their biggest accomplishments I was reminded of recently uh, was uh, the state legislature in North Carolina allowing for state surplus, so equipment, uh, computers, and other uh, related equipment that is surplus by the state could go to these nonprofit refurbishers to be refurbished and then redistributed. And so E2D um, and the Crampton Institute are, are two marquee refurbishers uh, in North Carolina that uh, taken this equipment from public and private sources, have an embedded job training program uh, to develop the skills of folks that can um, to re- refurbish that equipment and then um, distribute to community-based organizations that have that frontline access to folks that maybe don't have uh, computer access are working on the skills that they need to, to use a, a computer confidently. And so both E2D and the Cramden Institute include in uh, their portfolio that, that skill building and resource to the organizations that take um, the equipment and pass it on to community members that need it, the skill support, you know, to provide for really productive use of this machine. So it's a, it's a beautiful closed loop system that I think really helps our communities move forward. And uh, I was just talking to Michael, um, one of the founders of the After network and a former employee at the Cramden Institute. And he reminded me that the after network, this network of, of computer refurbishers, um, technology equipment refurbishers nationwide, which I think numbers over a hundred now is only five years old. So see how fast this movement is growing that the after network, which has experienced unprecedented demand for, um, for their inventory, you know, as, as, as COVID has really required that folks have this tech access, is only five years old as an institution. So yeah,
1: that's remarkable. Um, so I derailed you from the actual question, um, which is uh, so what's being done nowadays to identify people and, and get them the help that that uh, they may want.
2: I'd love to take a moment to go back to Lisks' model of digital navigator, which I must say, was informed deeply by National Digital Inclusion Alliance's work in this space. Um, And so we're forever indebted to them. Uh, but this idea that a digital navigator is someone you might encounter at a public library or, you know, kind of a community information officer in a municipal government is suddenly a role that can be defined across any number of uh, occupations. So, LISC, for example, has cross trained digital navigators at cultural resource centers, at fire stations, um, at libraries, at financial opportunity centers. And I love the idea of digital inclusion as an embedded sort of skills. It, in the context of other skills that that someone might be forming. So digital access as it relates to financial literacy. Uh, And so at our Financial Opportunity Center example, uh, a cross-trained digital navigator is also a financial coach. They're an employment coach. And ensuring that tech access really carries forward uh, someone's progress in their job development or their personal finance. Um, building wealth and assets as a result of having access to technology. So, I think what has really evolved is certainly the essential role of that community anchor institution, like a library, being able to answer someone's question in somewhat of a transactional fashion. Maybe you won't learn each other's name. To a digital navigator that's embedded in a community that has a long term relationship with someone, and tech is enabling you know, their their journey. I think I think that's a really important evolution in this field.
1: Well, especially to establish confidence because confidence doesn't come from a one-hour training or an eight-hour training. <laughs> it comes from yeah. repeated um, efforts. Right, uh, or so- how do I connect to
2: the Wi-Fi? <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> Amy, um, any, any additional thoughts of, of how we identify and uh, make sure that uh, we're able to get uh, the digital skills building out where it needs to go?
0: Yeah, I think the digital navigator model is pivotal and essential in that. Um, Unfortunately, we don't have enough of them across the country. And so I think growing that is going to be really important to continue to identify folks who need support.
1: We should probably put hundreds of millions of dollars into it in the near future. We
0: should. (laughs) You know what else we should do is we should make sure that um, there's funding for outreach for the emergency broadband benefit uh, to community-based organizations. We should really do that.
1: Someone should have pointed out that, that creating that program without any funding for outreach might result in it being dramatically underutilized to the point at which it could have run out of money by now if it was heavily utilized, but it's only a 10% expenditure, I think, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So lessons my hope learned. is
0: though, my hope is in a couple of weeks there there's actually legislation that's proposed to do just that. And my hope is that that there will be funding dedicated to help community-based organizations hire more digital navigators and/or folks that can help get people to that program. But I think that's actually a, a, where we need to grow, Chris, in this field. One solution is digital navigators. I think the digital inclusion ecosystem is another solution. So if you have a community, say, you know, a small community, and the folks in the library, and the fire station, and the schools, and and the um, not local nonprofits are all working on digital inclusion, but coordinating, then they can then, you know, through their existing networks of of people that they work with on the ground say, oh, well, hey, you need a computer too, don't you? Okay, so you can go over here. And then if you, you go, go to computer and then it's like, oh, well, do you, do you want some training? Hey, our friends over at the library do training. And so I think that's where if we get to a, a place where we can equip communities to create these ecosystems, then that will better serve folks um, in conjunction with making sure there's digital navigators, and then also making sure you know that the federal, state, and local funding that goes to consumers and households aligns and is easy to access, and um, you know specifically the emergency broadband benefit or any state program that supports folks in subscribing affordably online or. Any future programs that states or local governments create use, using ARPA funds, making sure that new members know about them and it's easy to access and that sort of thing. So I, I think it's actually an area of growth for us. We're seeing promising models, but I don't think it's it's universal yet.
1: So I think the upshot is is that we are we're on the right path, and and we sure could be going down the path more quickly. But uh, we're 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 heading the right way. There's reasons for optimism.
2: But don't lose momentum, right? Yes, right.
1: absolutely not.
0: One thing we keep saying is that fingers crossed the time this airs infrastructure bill has passed. We're not talking about if <laughs> or it's more when um, reconciliation has gone through and the additional funds that we're seeing in the reconciliation package that could go to broadband are passed as well. Um, you know, my my hope is that that will happen. But we believe that that's actually just a down payment on this issue. digital divide is so wide and broad and vast, and there are so many facets to it that we can't make one federal allocation and then move on, like Congress needs to continue to invest in the states need to continue to focus on this local governments, local communities need to continue to organize around this. I, I will say, after Congress passes the infrastructure bill, I'm just that I do see a lot of the work moving to the state and local governments and to the to communities as a whole, right? A lot of this work is going to go to them. A lot of the funding will go to them. And so, and, and that's where the great solutions are anyway. So, so I love that that's the model, um, but just to be prepared for that, to be prepared to, to jump into the fray and, and coordinate and collaborate and, and work together and, and then carry out the work. Um, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And we need to
2: continue to, to invest in it and, um, and focus on it. And I'd love to add to that by emphasizing how important it will be for local communities, you know, mayors and and their constituencies, to lift up to states, as states have more historic levels of resources to support broadband deployment that localities are lifting up their recognition that planning for broadband is also planning for digital inclusion and together we get digital equity. And so those, partic- you know, that, that adoption strategy is something that local communities can start to do that local networking can recognize how one plus one is gonna equal three in that community and sort of lift it up at the same time that those uh, broadband infrastructure dollars are being applied for um, and, and projects are being deployed. I think that's a very important message for, for local communities to, to really articulate in this moment.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on and not just providing a lot of good information, but you know, it's, it's exciting and positive and and it gives us something to be happy about. So thank you for that.
2: Absolutely. It was
0: a pleasure, Chris. Good to see you both.